Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess purity, political, and pop culture. Today, I am joined with a new Instagram friend, which it feels like that is just going to be the theme of Nobody's Damsel. I'm going to keep meeting amazing people on Instagram, and I'm going to keep introducing you to them here on the Nobody's Damsel podcast. Um, Today, it is Faye Williams. She is this incredible individual, and we connected over our shared experience of um, deconstructing our faith. Faye, she's going to talk a little bit about her upbringing, I'm sure, in this episode, but she was originally raised Catholic um, and is now deconstructing some um, more, I would say, evangelical faith, but I'm going to let her kind of take it away in a couple minutes here and and share what she feels like she's deconstructing from. But we bonded over that because, as you guys know, I don't shy away from talking about that being my own personal experience in my faith. Um, Faye is... um, going to school to uh, become a counselor. Uh, She's currently getting her master. She's going to talk a little bit about that as well. And so there's a lot of components, but we decided to get together. Uh, We've been chatting back and forth in the DMs for a while now. We decided to get together and make an episode um, out of all these conversations we've been having that are interconnected to, you know, deconstruction and the psychology of deconstruction and you know, religious trauma and grief and what that journey has looked like for us, what we've seen in the broader community at large. There's just so many um, interconnected conversations that I, I think we can have today. And so I know we're not going to get through everything we'd like to to share, but we have an hour and a half and I would just love to dive right in and introduce you to this amazing person. Let her introduce herself. So without further ado, uh, Faye, how are you? Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> How's it going? It is going good. Um, it's a rainy day here in San Diego, so I'm inside and I've gotten to look forward to this all week. So I'm excited. And you are in the Midwest, is that correct? I'm in the Midwest. It's usually pretty overcast here. Today is not that different, but it's warmer than it has been. And a lot of the trees are budding and it's pretty sweet. So yeah, we're starting to see some spring action, which is exciting Um, and metaphorical in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Because, (laughs) Um, but yeah, tell um, everybody that might be listening in a little bit about um, kind of what the last 10 years has looked like for you. Uh, You are on this journey to become a counselor. You are on this journey to um, deconstruct your faith. Talk a little bit about that and where those things intersect. I'd love to hear. Sure. Uh, well, you introduced me as studying psychology, and that's very current. I'm six weeks away from finishing my last class. I have to look for a placement so that I can meet with clients one-on-one, which has been made pretty difficult by the pandemic and just state-to-state stipulations as my school is in California and I'm in the Midwest and potentially planning on moving soon. So Um, I've been kind of open to moving to different locations and really looking into different, it has to be a nonprofit and I've been looking into nonprofits and private practices and it's been really interesting learning what the differences are and what people's experiences have been in therapy. Um, And then you also introduced me as having grown up Catholic and currently deconstructing more evangelicalism. And I think I could, 
I could definitely start there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think growing up Catholic was to me synonymous with being Lebanese with Jewish family and having this sort of like niche family that was a little bit different, but thinking, you know, everybody's families have their own unique culture, their own unique customs. And mine is special because it's, it's special for me and learning over time that there wasn't really anyone else like me um, out in my sort of day-to-day regular life outside of my family, like in school. And I grew up swimming and not seeing, not seeing other people who are also Middle Eastern and just thinking, well, like they're back in the Middle East and my family came over here and like 80, 90 years ago. And they, they, you know, they're, it's just a little bit different and that's cool. And thinking that each family had these unique stories like that and um, really valuing the beauty in that and in diversity and uh, not really separating culture from spirituality um, and growing up Catholic meant going to school that were Catholic schools um, off and on. I also went to public schools. I also grew up in an Episcopalian school that was amazing And then I studied early childhood education and psychology in college at a Jesuit school, um, DePaul in Chicago. And I loved every minute of it. I learned a lot. It's, um, I think, considered progressive, liberal, and those kinds of labels. But I didn't really have that terminology at the time. I just knew that they really care a lot about service. They really care a lot about, like, doing things that will equalize society and, um, bring in the marginalized. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so those were values that I had my family, the, the Lebanese side of my family is probably the most, like, I would say service, servant hearted people, um, which is like kind of a Christianese term, but that was very much how I view all of them. It's a huge family. Um, Every single one of them is unique and really special to me. And I've learned so much just in my life from all of them and their unique stories. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I was kind of like, I don't know about, like, I don't really understand like what I'm supposed to believe about Jesus. And like, like, I don't. I don't think that like what I'm learning here is lining up with what I'm learning over here. Mm -hmm. And we definitely had four years of Bible study in school, Mm -hmm. um, religion class, like every day, um, reading like every single book of the Bible. And most of my teachers were very much more directed towards spirituality than the legalistic aspect of, you know, like, Levitical law like we studied it but we were like wow that would be really silly if we had to follow that and like um but then there wasn't also this added sort of evangelical like praise be to Jesus for getting us out of that and so I I was kind of like maybe I'm more like maybe I'll express my faith in like Judaism and 
maybe I'm Baha'i. Like I, I really like the aspect, like the universal aspect of like pulling different pieces of different expressions of faith. And mm-hmm. I, I think what I, what really drew me to the person of Jesus is his, like, uh, I don't want to use like too harsh of language, but like his, his criticism of religion. And mm-hmm. I, I've always been pretty anti-religion. And, um, and so like my relationship with God sort of was directed into discovering who God is it, like through the person of Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and so that was, that was like kind of, my first sort of like 20 years and I know like yeah it's funny that you say that like you're in your early 20s and I'm just wondering like like Catholicism versus like your upbringing like what you know what kind of like differences were there and I I don't know like how much of my Catholicism in my childhood I know that like when I hear stories of people deconstructing now what they learned in childhood horrifies me. And, Mm -hmm. but I do see that, that those, some of those beliefs and the effects of those beliefs seeped into my mentality, like after I left the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you say, um, you know, you, you pull on the, uh, you know, relationship transcending religion comparison, because I feel looking back on my own deconstruction journey, that that was kind of like, um, you know, when like you're pulling wallpaper off the wall, but you like you do it because you see that like there's a little tiny piece that you just start pulling and then you keep pulling the wallpaper and it all comes down. I feel like my very first, like the first time that I noticed that the wallpaper of my religion was potentially, you know, going to be pulled back to reveal this massive deconstruction journey was when I felt in my gut that my relationship with Jesus transcended my religious experience in the church. Uh, That was kind of the first thing that I was like, hmm, this feels different. It doesn't feel congruent. You know, it feels like these two things are not equally synonymous. Um, Even more so, it almost feels like my experience in the church negates the character of Jesus um, that I'm reading about and connecting with. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey um, that I kind of, you know, separated myself from the evangelical faith that I had identified with for several years. Um, And now I identify very proudly as agnostic, although I would say that um, I'm a very spiritually inclined agnostic and I'm a very curious agnostic in that my agnosticism is not on a shelf for me. It's something that I spend, you know, hours and hours a week exploring. I love religious studies. I, um, you know, I try to explain to people in layman's terms that might not be as in this, you know, world as you and I are that with theology, you're kind of approaching the world through the lens that the Bible is absolutely true. And with, you know, the philosophy of religious studies, you're approaching the world through the lens of is God real at all? And is the Bible real at all? Right. And so you're kind of coming to the conversation, the faith conversation from two different places, you know, theologians coming from the place of assumption that the Bible is absolutely true. And, um, religious studies individuals coming, you know, to the conversation with, you know, that question of what, where even is the Bible from, you know, who even wrote the Bible, um, 
is religion real at all? And so these are conversations that are, are really rich. But I know that to someone who, again, maybe isn't as in this world as you and I are, because we've definitely immersed ourselves into this world, um, they might be kind of confused as to how the two differ or how, you know, a theologian differs from a religious studies person or what have you. And so I, I found that piece interesting that you, you shared about the religion and the relationship and all of that, because I almost think, I don't want to say it's universal entirely, but I, I would, I would wager to bet that it is almost universal, that that is one of the first questions that deconstructing Christians ask themselves. And then it kind of takes you on this journey that looks totally different for every person, right? That deconstruction journey is, um, it's not a one size fits all. Everybody goes on their own journey. And so much of that journey looking unique for everyone comes from a place of our spirituality and our religion being so interconnected to our personal identity. And obviously there is no one size fits all when it comes to personal identity and, you know, our, our collection of shared experiences. I had no idea going into this call um, how culturally rich your background was. Um, and I am a huge advocate for like interfaith experiences. I believe um, really strongly in interfaith advocacy, interfaith mutual aid, the need for, you know, interfaith abolition in the sense that I think that all faiths need to get together and be abolition minded in, you know, human rights issues. And um, so I believe in the power of, um, a world that is very interfaith in the sense that we all kind of coexist, uh, on the shared set of human rights values. And then we, you know, separately we have our own religious ideals and values that are important to us in our personhood, but we're not doing any of that evangelical, non-consensual, um, you know, you need to believe what I believe, um, type of behavior that can become so problematic, um, as we've seen, you know, both of us have seen in the evangelical world. But for me personally, to get back to the question that you had asked, I was actually not raised evangelical. I found an evangelical youth group through my high school right after my dad's death. My parents were both raised Presbyterian, which is, you know, a branch of evangelism, um, in the Midwest. And they both believed in God. They both, um, you know, when we would drive by a church or when it was Christmas time, there was no doubt in my mind that from a very young age, we were a family that believed in God, but who God was, what God was, what church was, that was all completely foreign to me because my parents never facilitated that for me in my childhood, which, um, when I found the youth group that ended up being incredibly problematic, incredibly, you know, just all of the things that you and I could talk for hours and hours about when it comes to church hurt and all of that. Yeah. But when I came, when I found that group, it was a lifeline for me because the first question that I asked when my dad died was, you know, God, who are you and what the fuck? Um, and I had never really dialogued <laughs> with God that way, but I remember like being 13 um, and just looking up at, you know, the ceiling of my room with my hands up in the air being like, who the fuck are you? You know, like I, I, I want to yeah. know right now. And I want to speak to the manager yeah. immediately, like big, big Karen vibes. Like I was like, I need to speak to whoever did this, you know, to myself and to my sister who, you know, this happened the day after her seventh birthday and to my mother who's losing the love of her life. Like 
I, and I immediately, I, I, I raged against this God to whom I'd never spoken before. Um, and then very, you know, soon after that, I was, um, I believe to be non-consensually um, kind of picked out of the crowd, you know, in terms of the story of my, my loss had kind of, it, it sent shockwaves through the school. Um, we were, you know, a, a tight school. A lot of the teachers and faculty knew my dad. Um, and so people were talking and that is kind of how the youth group leaders found out about it and how they solicited me into this youth group. And I was very, very willing, which is a whole conversation you and I could have about like, abuse can still happen even if you think you're consenting, which is weird. And there's like so much gray area. Right. Um, and then there's that, there's that like element of power. Um, when you have someone who is like in authority and who's in power and who claims to know God and who claims to know, you know, a path to reunification with your father who has just died and you're 13 and you're wide eyed and you don't know anything. You're this blank canvas when it comes to religion and they indoctrinate you with this story of, you know, the Bible and the gospel and, and this hope that one day you will see your father again and all will be right in the world. If you just, you know, click your heels three times and say, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And that is, you know, for me, I am, well, I was, and I still have this, and it's one of the best things about me. And it's also one of the worst things about me. I am someone who can assimilate. And in, in the best way, that means that I can hold space for your story. I can read the room from a mile away and make sure that I'm not overstepping boundaries. Um, in the worst way, it means that I can become a shell of myself, right? And I can just kind of um, completely assimilate and, and, oh, okay, this is what we do. This is what we say. And this is how we say it. Okay, perfect. Which is exactly what led me six months into my introduction to Presbyterian evangelical faith, you know, to being one of the youth group leaders, to being an individual who was teaching Sunday school myself, who had these positions of power in the church that the, um, that the youth group was connected to. And thus began this four and a half year situation where I was walking the walk, talking the talk, assimilating the assimilate, you know, I was doing what I needed to do to get to, to heaven. Um, and then interestingly enough, I was also living a double life, which is a whole nother story, you know, with, um, you know, being in relationships with, with, with females and, and having a lot of reckless behavior and experiencing a lot of mental illness, um, going through a personality disorder that was undiagnosed until my early 20s, um, and, on, and so on and so forth. And I had been able to very much separate these two worlds um, and go to church on Sunday and walk the walk and talk the talk, which it's interesting because they, they enforce that, right? They, they tell you to leave Definitely. it at home, and you do. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, that being said, my experience in my upbringing, I think it primed me to be especially vulnerable in my early adolescence. And I was, and I was preyed upon, and I played into it, and I assimilated into it. And for that reason, I think that my deconstruction journey has been a little bit lower stakes than that of some other individuals who have been washed in evangelical Christianity from birth. I know you mentioned before we even started the call that some of the stories that you had heard um, 
you know, from your evangelical peers or what have you about their childhood experience, they're traumatizing, right? And and yeah. I don't have those same stories. My deconst- my evangelicalism was a brief five-year window of my life. I was very quickly able to kind of say, mm, the wallpaper is being pulled back to reveal a lot of inconsistencies with the narrative. And I was able to walk away almost entirely intact. However, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for those that need to dig deep into their personal identity, like a Jenga, you know, a game of Jenga and pull out all of those things that they were taught and told, um, and just hope it doesn't all fall down, right? And hope that they get to keep yeah. some part of their identity. And so yeah. that's been my experience with um, with my deconstruction. And, and I think part of the reason why, again, my deconstruction has been a little bit lower stakes than other people. Mm. I mean, lower stakes is like an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting term when you put eternity on the line, you know? Right. Okay, yeah. that's fair. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think, Kids, everything that I that I know about adolescence, adolescent development from studying psychology in both undergrad and grad, like at the grad level, and working with families for 25 years. I've mostly worked with preschoolers, but you know, they grow up and like I have siblings who are a, like a decade younger than me and different generation. That's such a vulnerable time in your life because that's when you are forming your own identity outside of your family and navigating how much you want to stay attached to your family. You are breaking away from your childhood attachment to your caregivers, to your primary caregivers, and navigating what it looks like to form new attachments with your peers without parental supervision without as much parental supervision. And so you're developing this independence and I can kind of relate to the loss that you experienced when you were a teen, um, but not, not nearly it's, it's, I would consider it like, I don't want to compare, but it's like, I can, I consider divorce to be a type of death because it's because of the loss that it creates and like, you can't go back to the way that things were. So it's similar in that way where it's like, it forms this clear dividing line where you cannot, you cannot go back and your life is not going to look at all the same. And my parents, my parents got divorced when I was 15. Um, My dad moved out when I was 15 and then they officially were divorced when I was 16. And I was at a Catholic, a very small Catholic high school where I was the only person whose parents were experiencing that at all, like any kind of separation or anything. They didn't have like a period of separation. They just, it was like one day, like, okay, we're getting divorced now. And it completely rocked my world and my worldview. And it was devastating, but I wasn't allowed to grieve in the way that I would probably try as like a therapist or a friend or like eventual parent to allow a child to grieve a loss like that because it was like, well, this is for the best. Like, it'll be better this way. Like this wasn't good. And like now, you know, like it needed to happen and it'll be better. And I like, even as an adult, I'm like, I don't know if that's true. And I don't know. um, I don't know if they, I don't know how they feel about it now. And I don't know. um, 
I don't know if like they were doing it out of anything else but survival at the time. And I could draw as a psychologist, like I could draw every single thing back to attachment theory and just nervous system regulation and needing to maintain a sense of safety and being motivated by that. And, you know, I've never had that evangelical concept of like original sin. And so I've always kind of looked at like why people do what they do. And I I think I've always been a bit of like a psychologist, even like as a young child, but that draw that, that drawing a dividing line outside of your control, like having that happen and then going, where is God in this and trying to make sense of it? That's human nature to try to make sense of it. And when you're vulnerable in your adolescence and you have someone else come in and say, oh, let me make sense of this for you. I consider that really abusive um, on, on like any level. I think that every, every person, however old they are, deserves to have their own autonomy and they they deserve to be able to develop their own meaning out of things. Um, Which is an extremely controversial take, right? Like if you were ever to tell, you know, I'm even afraid to say this. I mean, I'm going to say it's my podcast. I can say whatever the fuck I want, but like, (laughs) but if you tell a Christian that them asserting their authority over their young child that, you know, as they implement Jesus into their life, like that's a hot take. That is oh. like immediately blocked, immediately like, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, not non-consensual, but when you are indoctrination, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. That indoctrination yeah. is responsible for a tr- an immaculate amount of, of the church hurt that exists in the world today because it's so paramount to their, their early identity that even if they've completely deconstructed an adulthood, it's still in them at that deep, deep level. And when what's in them is eternal hell and internal suffering, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually have <laughs> confronted parents that, in that way. Um, as someone who studied psychology and believed in God, um, I would absolutely confront parents who would tell their kids to obey me. Um, it made me cringe. Oh my so gosh. Hard. Yes. I used to. Yeah. I, I've seen this <laughs> many times before. And I would say like, do you really want them to just obey me just because I'm an adult in their life? Like they don't know me. We haven't built trust. Don't you want them to be able to learn how to trust themselves and developing trust with someone else? And those skills are not allowed in, in super fundamentalistic, I guess, sex, but it's like kind of, kind of more prevalent than just like those little, you know, like the, the little tiny offshoots are like, the the sects that we think are not, you know, that popular. I think that that's a mentality that a lot of kids grow up with. Like they get a babysitter and it's like, okay, like pizza and TV and then like listen to your babysitter, like babysitters in charge. Yeah. So there's a lot, I say, what I would say to that is there's a lot of things that are as American as apple pie. And (laughs) one of them is social control. And social control comes mm-hmm. in many, many forms, right? Because parent has been, yeah. you know, raised in an authoritarian setting. And so then parent is possessive over their child. Yeah. And then parent imposes authoritarian, you know, m- mindset and worldview on their child. And then that generational trauma progresses. Yeah. And I think it's a cycle of parents not having developed a strong identity because they weren't allowed to. 
And then what happens is that when you become a parent and you don't have a strong sense of who you are, who you are without the systems that you're in and outside of those systems, you project those things onto your children. So saying no or, you know, disobeying and quotes, like those are, those are offensive because if you're projecting onto your kids who you are and your identity or the identity that you want them to represent to the world of like who your family is and who you are, that's super offensive to be told no. And it's, it's like not okay. And it's scary, I think, to parents to have a kid who thinks for themselves and develops their own sense of who they are and what they want out of life and what they believe. And then again, when you add eternity to that, and when you add eternal damnation to that, and like the, the problem is that they're not believing in Jesus and you might be separated for all of eternity, there's so much fear and the indoctrination of that. I, I'm just like appalled by that because again, I didn't grow up with that mentality. And then once I was like, okay, I'm never going back to church, which is kind of, I could go a little bit deeper into that story at some point. But once I decided that I was like, oh no, does that mean, does that mean I'm going to hell now? Wait a minute. I don't know if I believe in that. And you spiral. And when you project all of that onto your kids, then who else are they supposed to grow up to be? But like neurotic little messes who don't have a strong sense of who they can trust. And then the church leader comes in and says, Hey, come to this youth group meeting. There's going to be pizza and it's going to be fun. And then let me talk to you about your eternity. There's like, there's this I think really obviously problematic, but like really unfair and really abusive connection that's made between identity and an eternity. And I think that like kids deserve to develop their own identity, which is so intrinsic to spirituality. Or I mean, spirituality is like completely intrinsic this to is your identity. so good. It's so funny how, I mean, the universe just consistently amazes me because I will be having conversations that just so effortlessly kind of like, you know, weave themselves into other conversations I'm having all at the right time, all in the right place. Like it's so affirming Um, in my deconstruction. I feel like my deconstruction journey has been so spiritually affirmed by the universe um, 10 times over, 100 times over, because I literally was just having this conversation and then it, you know, it weaves itself so perfectly into this conversation. And um, what it's making me think of is just um, something that's been really heavy on my heart lately, which is the, um, I, I always say, and go with me on this for a second, I always say that if you took every single evangelical Christian into a room and you sat them down and you said, hi guys. Okay. So today we're going to be looking at, we're going to be spending five hours together and we're going to look at a timeline and they, and they'd all be like, what's a timeline. And and we're going to spend five hours talking about the history, the anthropology, the psychology, the psychology, the medicinal and the um, social or cultural backdrop of how this belief that you hold was formed. 
So we're going to be answering all those questions today on this timeline because there's this whole idea in your minds that Christianity is the city on a hill and it was created in a vacuum and that it's untouchable. But what you don't realize is that it was created in culture against the backdrop of psychology, of you know societal nuances, of history, of uh, political you know nuances. And I want to tell you why when you put all of those things together, you get opportunity for a narrative to be woven that is not actually anything except for the, a cultural production, right? It's a, it's a production. And so the reason yeah. why I bring it up at this point in our conversation is just because you talk about you know, that really scary conversation of eternal damnation. But the reality is that Jewish cosmology doesn't even allow for such a concept because of of damnation. And that's because, you know, it wasn't even until the fifth century CE that like hell was even developed. And so, um, and it was through Augustine, who is, you know, who was a political force at that time, not even a religious force, that uh, introduced the doctrine of eternal damnation, the doctrine of hell, completely incongruent with Jewish cosmology up until that point. You know, you, you, there was no eternal lake of fire. There was none of that. And then all of a sudden, you have this political imposition, this, you know, when the Bible is translated 3,000 times, you have the opportunity for 3,000 different, you know, versions of events. And it's like a game of telephone, a toxic game of telephone. But, you know, you talk about hell and eternal damnation and fear and all of these things that live in the hearts and minds of individuals who, you know, allegedly read a book every single day that tells them 300 plus times not to fear um, and not to worry, not to lose heart. Um, And yet they are so fucking afraid of this this metaphorical physical realm that is going to burn them for eternity when in fact if they were to sit in that pretty little room for five hours and look at the timeline of everything they would realize that there's a very good chance that that physical domain does not exist yeah I definitely see there's that dividing line again of like um mysticism where curiosity was allowed. You brought up curiosity earlier, and I think that's that dividing line. When you lose your curiosity and you get into a binary way of thinking, um, that doctrine of hell created that binary way of thinking in a lot of ways. And I think there are other ways that we have developed binary terms for things. But that one is like, there's... It, it really does rob you of curiosity because then like you're, you're looking at everything through a lens of fear and the alternative to hell is heaven with this God who could have like let you go to hell, could have like let you be born under different circumstances or like maybe like you're not totally sure if this God really loves you, really cares about you and like you have this kind of iffy, insecure attachment. <laughs> I like love attachment oh theory, but like, yes. you know, I think super insecure this attachment. All the time. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like what, but like those are your those are your choices, and it creates like a double bind where you're like, do I want that eternity either? Like, like that doesn't sound it's fun so either. interesting that you say this because last night I just held, um, I facilitated a Zoom call with some of my favorite women in the world. 
Um, and I, we call these calls that we do every couple weeks. You should join. I would love for you to join. Wow. Um, we do these calls every couple weeks and we call it the good girls club. It, it's kind of like a nod at the, the good old boys club. Uh, you know, at the ones that would smoke cigars and be super problematic and just gross and play poker. So we call ourselves the good girls club. Um, and we have these really difficult conversations uh, every couple weeks. And it's just, it's turned out to be just, um, an immaculate group. I'm so impressed with this group of women and the way that they think, but, um, we were talking last night about a lot of things, and something that came up for me was we we went down this weird rabbit hole where we started talking about how um, and this is you know very much a pivot of what we're talking about. Well, it'll it'll turn back around, but we were talking about how um, statistically speaking, there's no more miracle work happening in Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity. You know, there's no more miracle favor. Grant, you know, statistically speaking, on any individual or any, you know, individual religious group. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. I started talking about how um, an individual who I know, who's like a devout evangelical, who does um, just everything by the book, uh, lost her, her child tragically in like one of the most horrible accidents. And how, I mean, and that is unthinkable, no matter who you are, what you believe, who you vote for, whatever. But my point was just that I couldn't reconcile. I was talking in the conversation about how I couldn't reconcile the fact that, you know, if this evangelical God was hypothetically real, and then he would do that to this individual who has laid her life down for this doctrine, and then reward me, you know, this queer, alternative, progressive, at times problematic individual with like two beautiful, healthy children, I couldn't reconcile that in my mind. And then I, re- I got off the call last night and I was sitting with that and it was heavy. And I, and sometimes I do, I, I do sometimes speak to evangelical God as if like, in case you're there, you know, like, I just want you to know. And I said to him, right, I said, in case you're there, I want you to know I'm fucking scared of you. I want you to know that if you're real, that that is so fucking scary that she would lay her life down for you and you would you would take her child like that. And so it, I don't know if that makes sense kind of in the context of what we were talking about, but I always find like the way in which, you know, it, it's it's this par- there's so many paradoxes, but yeah, it, talking about insecure attachment is what I was getting at is like I can't even imagine being in relationship with that God, because even like when I kind of like call him out hypothetically, just in case it is such an insecure attachment and I'm coming at him. It's kind of like that, like weird, creepy uncle, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner where you're like, okay, uncle Bob, just please pass the mashed potatoes and please don't be weird. You know, like that's how I feel about evangelical God. Does that make sense? It does. And I think a good term to kind of introduce right now is trauma bond because when you are, when you don't know what you're going to get when you go to this person that you're told to trust, it creates yes. And when you're told that like all of your needs will be met through prayer, that Jesus always answers your prayer, that you know, like He says yes if it's in His will, then you're like, well, so it's not in your will to like let this kid live. Like you're the healer, but like it's not in your will to heal. And, and it gets into those questions where you get this like massive cognitive dissonance. And I know that the way that I used to explain that to myself was like, I don't like it. And I would, I would talk to God, like, like, why did you set it up like this? Like, like, why is this the way that you decided to set things up? 
And I think that that's everybody's question. Like, why is there suffering? Like, why do, why do kids have cancer and why, why do people die unexpectedly? Why does abuse happen? And my answer was always like, like we live in a fallen world. And I don't, I don't necessarily connect that with the concept of original sin, but like, it's not hard to look around and say like, there's things are not as they could be. Things are not as good and as happy and as healthy as they could be. And, and, and then when you pull Jesus into that as like the answer and you don't get an answer, then it does set up a trauma bond where you're constantly asking for an answer and you're constantly in pain because you're going, why does this person who's supposed to care about me and love me more than anybody else not, why are they not able to show me and why won't they show me that they care by letting me keep this thing that I care about the most? And, oh, like maybe it's because I'm idolizing my parents or my kid or my marriage And that's why God had to take it away from me. And then you get into this like creepy theology where there's this like sky daddy who decides every little thing that happens in your life and everything can be traced back to God's will. And that, that sets God up as an abuser. And I, I yes, I just cannot get enough of this. Like, and I have so much to say in response to, I, I can't choose to believe in that God. I can't, and I won't. It's so hard. Okay. So yeah, I mean, just think about Christian apologetics and the entire existence of, you know, a, 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 um, I mean, it's a religion in and of itself. that's apologizing for all that doesn't make sense about Christianity. Like they exist to yeah. apologize and to justify things that literally make no sense. I mean, you talk about the fallen world analogy. I remember being like very, very new, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed. I got my expo markers and I'm going in to be the Bible teacher. And I remember writing the verses on the board thinking, hmm, if heaven is happy all the time, then why did the devil rebel in heaven? How does that work? That sounds like conflict in heaven. And I remember having that thought and just like pushing it aside and like filling the little like cups with goldfish and being like, okay, well, I'm just going to feed these kids goldfish and teach them this, you know, today. but I remember being like, it, what what's going on with that? Like, why why was there conflict in heaven if heaven is this perfect place? And why was there conflict among the angels if these angels are these anointed beings? You know, does that mean, it basically puts this- Because, Ellie. Right, it puts this <laughs> in our mind of like, wait, do angels have free will? Then aren't they just incongruent with God? (laughs) But then the other big question that I had that really contributed to like my initial question asking was like, hey, wait a minute. Why the fuck did you do this if you had foresight to know that it was going to go the way it's gone? Like, Why was this the way? (laughs) Yeah, because (laughs) if you are omnipresent and uh, what is it? Omnipresent and omni omniscient Um, yeah if you know everything and you know it before it's going to happen and you have this little idea in your head that you're going to create this world well first of all like if you have all the control in the world why wouldn't you set us on a trajectory that was you know and and here's what because a christian immediately can already hear them in my dms like well you know that's because like god gave free will the free will argument is a complete fallacy 
there's so many fa- different forms of fallacy in the free will argument. It's not even funny. But like, aside from that, the reality is, is that even if you gave someone free will, kind of to your point, it's like, you can still reveal yourself to me and I have free will to choose if I want to follow you or not. Right. Right. And so like, there's no reason for you to be this mystical sky daddy in order for me to like, you know, mystically tune in and not, you know, have doubt in my faith, all of those really bizarre things. But I have always wondered why God didn't stop, you know, hypothetically speaking, God didn't stop um, the bite of the apple from happening or what have you, or why he even set it in motion at all. If like, he was like, okay, good idea. Good idea. I've got a plan. I'm going to make people. And I know exactly what's going to happen. The first second I make them, they're going to fuck it all up. And then it's going to be over for all those bitches. But you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to do it anyways. It's also like, what is relationship? Because the argument is that God wants relationship with us. What is relationship if he already knows everything that we are going to do? Right? Like what, how is that relationship at all? If he has, I don't, I don't want to say predicted, but he has set in motion this reality and he knows 10 years from now what good or bad decision we're going to make. That's not relationship. That's kind of, I mean, that's, that's almost AI-like. It's almost like he is our simulator, right? And so it makes no sense at all. And, and there are just so many questions like that that I wrestled with really early on in my deconstruction that I would ask, you know, to my um, mentors or, you know, the, the individuals that were claiming to be, you know, more spiritually advanced. And these are individuals who immediately would, would say, well, you know, there are some questions that can't be answered, just really unsatisfactory, you know? And it's just like, no, no, I, I, these are questions that need to be wrestled with that need to be elevated at the pulpit. But what they do is they really shake the foundation of this elevator pitch and in evangelical Christianity where the primary goal is numbers, numbers, numbers. How many people can we get in the door? How many people can we get saved? How many baptisms can we say we do a year? You can't have, you know, a a percentage of the congregation and certainly not a percentage of the congregation that is in leadership, really rocking the boat and asking people to ask these critical questions. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think you take all of those questions and they just snowball. And for me, I kept, I would always, I think the way that I was able to stay for so long is um, you know, part of it was a trauma bond, but part of it was also like in my mind, if you boil it down to God is love, then what else makes sense with that? And I could kind of collect the things that maybe made sense with that and, and put up a wall against the others. And I think for me, like love does have to involve a a good deal of choice, if not like you know, there, there might be some kind of like a ratio of choice versus like, um, circumstance and things that are like aspects that are out of your control, but to choose to love in a circumstance or in a relationship, I do think that we have the ability to choose to use our agency to do that or not. And I think if eternity is a given, if we, if, we're eternal beings and we don't, we only die in our bodies and then our, we get new bodies that either, you know, are punished in fire for eternity or go to heaven. Um, I think that 
we, why, like, I just, I don't understand why we need a gatekeeper. I don't understand why we need Jesus to have died once for all so that we can all go to heaven, but then we still have to make that choice. Um, it, it makes sense to me on the level of like, do you want to love or not? But when you, when you boil it down to a choice between heaven and hell, that's not a choice. It's a double bind. Right. 100%. And then there's just the element of like the abusive character of God being ultimately like irreconcilable with, you know, you you know, there's so many things that like, okay, God is love. God is this, God is that. But we in my household are a show me household. And so what you say does not matter. What you do matters. Your actions matter. And so God is very much not a show me God, right? Because he is surprisingly inactive in, and, and, and I would get a lot of pushback for saying this because individuals will say, well, that's not true because when I prayed, my grandma got cured and, you know, and, and then you, we talked about this last night in the zoom call, really rich conversation about, you know, is your grandma a miracle or is she a statistical data point? in the sense that like 0.001% of individuals have to survive from that cancer in order for the statistical analysis of that cancer survival rate to be 0.001%. So is your grandma the 0.001% or is she a miracle? And through that lens, the question becomes, in the event that we are all just statistical plotted data points, wouldn't it be that we all experienced X amount of miracles in our lifetime? Right. Like we all experienced right. that one point where we were the point zero zero one percent, where we won the giveaway, where we survived the cancer, where we you know, overcame our infertility or whatever miracles we have. Um, and, and here's the thing is this is a little bit um, incongruent with my current like spiritual faith. And so I'm not necessarily saying that this is my this is very atheist. Like the perspective that I'm imposing right now is a little bit more atheist than I am. Because I do believe in manifest destiny. I believe in energetic force fields. I I believe that energy lives inside of us and that, I mean, look at a tuning fork, right? You can, you can connect energy without even touching um, the, the thing that is, I mean, look at a deaf person enjoying music. Energy exists in the world and it exists in all of us. And I do, and you know, from a metaphysical perspective and also a physics perspective, it cannot be created or destroyed. And so I believe that, and I was talking about this last night, that's why I am okay with someone praying for me, someone offering good vibrations. Uh, I said last night, I said, A, because I think that there is something so intimate and wonderful about sharing the burden in community, right? And being able to say, you know, I'm going to put this down at your feet and I'm going to let you pick it up because it's too heavy for me to carry it alone. But then also B, if there is any chance that our energy is all interconnected, which the cosmos and, you know, all of the physics that we have thus far and the math that we have of the universe tells us that we're all interconnected energetically, then that would suggest that you could potentially pray for that miracle in my life or, you know, or send energy for that miracle in my life. And hey, maybe it'll happen. And so um, that's kind of where I'm at spiritually. I want to put that footnote in. However, just from a purely like statistical, uh, you know, critically statistical standpoint, this whole idea that, you know, miracles happen, specifically that they happen through the lens of Christian God and Christian God only is very short-sighted. 
Oh yeah. I think that's definitely a very narrow lens and we have this like infinite cosmos that we, I feel like we're barely scratching the surface on things. Like there are animals in the bottom of the ocean that we haven't discovered yet. And we think that we can put God into a box Mm -hmm. and he only fits into the Bible. And that's, that's not something that I've ever been able to accept or believe. But I think as far as miracles, as far as like healing, what I was taught and what I, what I accepted within more charismatic Christianity is that, you know, if we prayed more, the statistics would go up. If we like turn towards right. God. And we've more, never we, seen that before, ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but then it begs the question, like, why are so many people so bent on not praying and not doing God's will? And, and it's like, if you really look at it, there's nobody who doesn't want their loved ones to not be sick. There, there's no parent who wouldn't like trade places with their sick child. And, and then if you look at God, like not actually doing that, but being able to, again, it just goes back to like, how can you have a view of God? That mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Yeah. And I, I love the aspect of, of looking at just like how things are moved, like how, how things happen and why we care and like, um, the, the energetic fields and all of that, it's, it's stuff that I've gotten into and I've like set aside a little bit and like pick up a little bit. And, and I, I've come to this place and I, I say this in certain like little deconstruction spots, but I call where I'm at right now, the, I don't know. And I think this is where, I mean, I, I truly think this is where I'm staying and I've landed here and I'm very comfortable staying here um, and not trying to arrive at any other destination besides I don't know. And I, I don't want to get to a place in the rest of my life where I think that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's too much that we can't and that we don't know. Right. And I'm very comfortable not knowing. And I, I love mystery and awe and wonder. And I, I think that evangelical Christianity sucks the life out of awe and wonder. And, and I don't want that for myself or my experience for the rest of my life. And I think that like, another thing that I say is like, there are not enough years left in my life for Christianity to make up for what it's taken from me. And so I won't go back. Like I'm, I'm going to keep moving forward in my life with that awe and that curiosity and not trying to label it or put it into a box or figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you say that because that is um, uh, when people ask me, you know, oh, wait, are you are you still Christian or what are what are you? I yeah. always say, well, technically I identify as agnostic, but mostly I just identify as curious. Like that's that's yeah. what I tell people is I'm just very yeah. curious about it. And I spend, you know, an excessive amount of time in the word, in religious texts, in um the word very Christianese of me, but you know, in the Bible, in, in, in Christian, uh, Christian texts and then other religious texts, I spend a, a, a ridiculous amount of time looking at that timeline that I, I mentioned wanting to impart on every evangelical Christian, um, and asking that question and putting that timeline together of like the history and the anthropology and all of that. But at the end of the day, you're so right. It comes down to this like eternal curiosity that, 
that the reality is, is that what we are looking for is beyond the veil, right? And be, and yep. by definition, with it being beyond the veil, we can all, every single religious group, you know, relationship group, even the atheists, you know, whatever, even the, the most obscure, um, you know, tribal religion in the, in the heart of, you know, Nigeria, everybody can collect what they think. But at the end of the day, it is beyond the veil for any one of us to obtain true knowledge, which is why I find it so fascinating that evangelical Christianity has made an entire doctrine out of, you know, this absolute certainty that they are the alpha and the omega, the end all, the be all, the only way into heaven. Um, and it's just like, you are asserting so much authority for someone who in many cases doesn't even know the scriptures backwards and forwards, doesn't even know that timeline backwards and forwards, doesn't even care to look at the footnotes of your Bible to find out who the translator was and, you know, who were they and what was their culture. Um, these questions are just really fascinating coming from the pulpits of mega churches by individuals who are, they don't even have their bachelors in theology, but they've been given a role as a pastor, you know, yeah. um, it, it is something that is so transcendent of space and time, and it's so beyond the veil. But I think Curious is really the only place that we are ever going to arrive. And it's funny because unlike you, um, while I do love mystery and I, I love, you know, I, I love all that, I don't romanticize it so much as I want. Um, I'm a very closure-oriented person. I'm very much like, I need to know how the mystery ends. Like, I need to know who it was. Like, that's my, like, personhood. So this has been an act of extreme, extreme, like, I, I, have, I have seen a side of myself, a side of self-control, a side of acceptance that I didn't even know existed. Because when I set out on this journey at, you know, 22, I was like, okay, well, surely by 24, I'll have all the answers and I'll be able to report back to all the theologians who have been doing this for 60 years. And I'll just Google my way and tell everybody, you know, and it's very, very hard for me to come to the place that you're in of like, this might be an eternal curiosity, or at least, you know, a curiosity that, that exists throughout this entire conscious experience. Um, because for me, I thought that if I spent a couple years, I would just be able to figure it all out and go on with my life. I think I I had a phase of that and maybe that was what I was doing um in within evangelical Christianity not knowing that that's where I was but I I left Catholicism kind of around college and was sort of checking out different churches um I checked out some of the some of the bigger ones like I'll just go ahead and name one like Willow Creek um checked out that one and had certain experiences there and didn't stay for very specific reasons. And I, I jumped around a little bit, but I always kind of like, I kept Catholicism as sort of my anchor. And I was, I was wanting to kind of figure out, like, I was excited to leave home and figure out what I believe and how I wanted to express that. And I think some some things that happen to like everyone in our youth, especially in our culture is that we leave home and we're expected to suddenly completely take care of ourselves without, without those anchors. And I think faith becomes that anchor for a lot of people. 
Um, and again, when you have someone else coming in and giving you that anchor and defining it for you, it becomes really abusive and controlling. And what happened for me was that I left Catholicism, kind of let myself just free float for a while, still believed in God and had some really personal, tragic things happen that made me really vulnerable and got very much sucked into a church that I now definitely think was a cult and would definitely call a cult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing about abuse is that like, you don't choose it. <laughs> abuse happens outside of your will. It happens like I used to define abuse as like what happens that's outside of God's will, but it's like, and I just I want to put a footnote in the episode right now that people listening who maybe don't have direct experience with evangelical Christianity or what have you, they might hear that word and it might be linguistically different to them. And they might be like, oh, what is the tea? A cult? Like, wow, that's so unique. It's like, and I just want to put it out there that it's not. That if you've ever heard of a mega church, uh, name any list of the 30 mega churches that come to mind when you think mega church many of them, if not all of them have some level of cult think going on, have some level of just like, you know, abuse going on. And there is, you know, so I just want to share that she's not talking about some obscure cult in the middle of France where she went and danced in white cloth. She's talking about the very real cult think that happens at, you know, at the epicenter of almost every mega church in almost every city in this nation. Ellie, how did you know that I went to France and danced in white? Hey, honestly, based on my mega church's experience, we probably would have been better off in Midsommar than we would have been in freaking. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I actually did become a an unpaid uh, children's pastor at a church plant in Paris and found out that the person that I found out about it from, um, the pastors are amazing, but like, it was really, really small. It was like less than 20 people at the time. And like, I was, (laughs) I was becoming a pastor there, like in the process of it. And I found out that this other guy that was coming from the States was in an actual cult. That's like, you know, that like Christianity describes as a cult, which is kind of how I used to define it. But yes, there is cult think on the mega church level. And I definitely want to agree with that and acknowledge that. And also just say that I've experienced it personally. And I think like the funny part of my story with the church in Paris is that um, France like didn't even recognize religious visas at the time. And like, that was something that we prayed for and then it changed. And like, we totally attributed that to God. And it's like, I look at that and I'm like, that's pretty colonial of us. And I don't like that. And uh, one of the biggest reasons that I left a mega church was that a friend pointed out colonialism and I couldn't unsee it. And I was like, I don't want to be partnered with that. And I don't want anything to do with that. And so I have a really hard time. I mean, I, I basically refuse to associate with the label of Christian at this point because of all that it represents to so many people. And it could, you know, like, you can argue that you've had a good experience and a healthy experience, but you can't deny how many people have not. And the group think and the cult think that happen on this like massive scale now. Um, but when I was, when I was in college, I was kind of hopping around 
ended up after college in Paris at that church plant and discovered that this guy was like telling kids that there were like he, I think the cult's called something about like 12 tribes. And I went to the pastor back in America and I'm like, did you know that this guy was like doing this cult? And like, he's one of your youth leaders and he's telling these kids that they have to become part of like the representative 12 tribes. And like, he's the assigned prophet to the nation of France. And like, did you know that he's teaching these kids that like these, like adolescent kids and the pastor's like yes we're having discussions about it and I'm like okay but then why are you still letting him be a youth leader and the pastor shunned me um he like shut me out he refused to answer my emails and wouldn't look at me walked away from me when I showed up at church and I never went back and um I that was I was like early twenties when this happened. And I've had experience after experience like that when I confront something and it is, I'm gaslit. I'm it's like sweeped under the rug or there are excuses made about it. And these men, like a lot of it is like men. I watch over and over and over again, men who are abusing someone or abusing like a group of people who get called out on it, it's acknowledged, but then they're put into this like church rehabilitation program where it's basically just like meeting with the pastor and like chatting and hanging out and they continue to be promoted. I've watched that over and over and over again. So this is actually, um, I am an, I identify um, as an abolitionist, which is a loaded term because people will hear that and be like socialist, you know, like, you know, they, you know, and they, they'll be like, burn her at the stake in the middle of the public square. Um, and, but if you understood the lens through which I, I refer to my abolitionist, you know, mindset, it's not at all what maybe your conventional fundamentalist right-wing conservative would think about, you know, what, but when I, when I talk about abolition, I'm specifically talking about believing in reformative justice, believing in restorative justice, believing in the fact that human right, you know, that there are basic human rights that should be afforded to even the worst of humanity. Um, and I also believe that you cannot measure the worst of humanity, that there is, you, you can, you can measure impact, but you can never measure intent, right? You can never know why someone did that, but anywho, that to kind of, kind of pivot back to what I'm saying, um, the best argument that I have ever found for abolition-mindedness is by referring people to the abolition-mindedness that already exists in society today at these levels. And so when someone says, abolition, how would we exist without abolition? I would say, well, a huge percentage of the population exists without abolition every, in the, within the framework of abolition, rather, every single day. Um, you know, so someone would wrestle with this question of like, how do we not be punitive? And I would say, well, it's, it's working really well for all the white men who, you know, get abolished, uh, you know, they, their, their sins, their, whatever, their, their impact is abolished every single day and they get second, third and fifth chances, you know, and, and they get to kind of walk this walk and talk this talk. And so when I, when I kind of seep someone's mind into the idea that abolition exists in society every single day and it's only afforded to the affluent and the white and the wealthy and often the males um 
the wheels start turning and you see kind of a light turn on for better or worse. And they're like, well, fuck, like, okay, well, I, you know, and then the question becomes, why do you get to play God and say that we get to, you know, abolish the sins and the, the impact of these men, but we get to, you know, we have no mercy and no grace for these men who are the, you know, they're effectively tumbled like rocks. You know, and I'm specifically talking about BIPOC or, BIPOC or black men who are, you know, put away in in prisons for the, their their lives, you know, and, and I look at that and I say, you know, let them go. And the average fundamentalist right wing conservative would say, you're absolutely fucking crazy. And I'll, I'll say, well, then why? Why does your white man get to go? Why did Brock Turner get four months in prison? Why did this individual who's teaching that he is, you know, the end-all be-all of, of France saviorism get to go and continue to be that? And so I just, I think a lot about when I hear stories like this, even though it irks me and it pains me, I also have fuel for my fire of being like, oh, there's another story that I can use as an example for how abolition is alive and well in America and American adjacent culture today. Wow, that's like, it's a really good point that I've not put into those terms before. And it makes total sense that um, you're right, like that is abolitionism. And it's working for, it's working for a certain population and not another population. And it's not serving the needs of society as a whole. Um, I, I definitely have always considered myself an activist and I've been like, you know, more and less active. And I think that being in churches that I, I never identified a church while I was in it as evangelical because I've always been kind of anti evangelicalism. I've, I really believe like it's not my job to tell you what to believe. And I think it's really important that everyone has their own spirituality and, I would have said as a Christian that everyone gets to have their own relationship with God. And I think it's really unfair to try to impose any kind of doctrine on anyone, even your children. And along with my faith has always been, like I said about my family and like the Jesuits in college service. And, um, and there's such a difference between a mission trip, like an evangelical mission trip where you like go in and like, like paint a school or whatever for like two weeks. And then like, you maybe kind of like share the gospel with some of the parents. Um, and you like play soccer with the kids and actually serving a population or a community by getting to know them, getting to know their needs and like actually empowering them. And I think there's this term now, white saviorism that like I didn't have at the time, but I would have just differentiated between what's empowering and what's disempowering and white saviorism is disempowering. And I think that like, it's such a good conversation that I, that a lot of society is having right now. I wish more people were talking about it, but that like, when we try to do something for someone, it's very disempowering. And when we try to like fix something from a place of superiority and thinking that we know it's best and thinking that we know how it's supposed to look and what the outcome should be. Um, when I become a therapist, that's something that I will absolutely avoid. Like you don't get to, you don't get to take your client and go like, this is, this is where I'm going to take you. This is what we want for you. And, um, 
there are a lot of aspects of the way that social work and therapy and um, just all kinds of like mission work in Christianity have worked in a way that are white saviorism and they're not, they're not performing abolitionism. And I maybe needed better word than like performing, but like they're not, they're not participating in actual abolition and, um, and you can be an activist and care about these things, but your intentions are like really, really good. And your effect is performative. And I, I've definitely been someone who has had like the intention of empowering and maybe participated in things in a way that were not as empowering as I wanted them to be. And I think that as long as we're addressing that and continuing to learn, then we can keep moving forward. And I think, I think too, that like, if we, if we just like pretend like, well, we're meeting needs, then the people whose needs we are and are not meeting as like someone in authority. Like if I'm, if I'm someone in authority and people are coming to me and saying like, this hurts and this isn't working. And my bent is to get them to conform. Um, then, then like, I just like, I guess like what I'm trying to line up is that there are a lot of pastors who would say that their authority comes from God but like they're not actually meeting the needs of the people and they're not addressing the concerns. And so then it makes me wonder, is their authority really from God? Right. And, um, and we know it's not right. <laughs> we, yeah. we know in many, many cases. And I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that and stir the pot anymore than this episode already will, but like, <laughs> we know it's not. And what you're saying makes me think about, um, kind of inadvertently makes me think about the strange bedfellowship between Christian exceptionalism and and the American dream. And so how, you know, Christian exceptionalism, and I love, this is a whole nother tangent. I feel like what you're saying, I'm building on it, but I'm also going in different directions. So I'm sorry if I'm like kind of all over the place, but like what, what you're saying about, you know, these individuals and their, their intent, even for yourself, you know, your intent not actually being what ended up being your impact and all of that. Um, a lot of that comes from the Christian exceptionalism that we were steeped in and the way that we were taught that, you know, that Christianity is the end all be all. Like I said, the alpha, the omega, it is the way, the truth and the light and is the only way into, you know, eternal salvation and that we would be doing a disservice to the world um, by, you know, not imposing that urgent message onto the world. And so, and the, the unique, the unique bedfellowship that I'm talking about with that Christian exceptionalism and the American dream is that we have basically, it's as as American as apple pie to think that the American dream is to be Christian. And that's why, for instance, like one specific example, that's why in Congress, in the Senate, we can have overt, very, very problematic, very abusive, you know, congr- senators and, and congressmen and women who are blatantly problematic through the lens of their Christianity, and they get to stay in office, and they get to, to say what they want to say, and they get a mic to say it. But can you even imagine if our one Muslim, I think we might even have two right now, I don't want to misquote, but we have a one Muslim that I know of, Alana Mar, you know, got up and used her power in the Congress to promote 
her faith. Can you even imagine? I think she would be put on the FBI watch list. She would immediately be removed from office. She would immediately be be labeled a, a massive threat. Even if what she was teaching was as simple as, you know, I believe that Allah says this and this, and it was nothing that was problematic or, or anything, whatever. But if she got up there on that stage and said, I believe Allah, this, 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 it would be, it would be one and done. She would be fired that afternoon. There would be a massive, I mean, CNN, Fox News, ABC, it would be everywhere. Whereas we are, it's so, so in the bed, Christian exceptionalism is so in the bed of the American dream that this rhetoric that Christianity is the end-all be-all is knit into the fabric of our schools, of our politics, of literally everywhere we go and exist, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to say, which is that we're, we're having this really unique um, time where Christians right now are not pretending because they actually believe it, and I'm going to hold space for that, where Christians believe that they're being persecuted, that it's the end of Christianity, that the Christianity is you know, being attacked And I say, no, the toxicity of Christianity is going through a natural die-off right now where we are no longer standing for this strange bedfellowship. And we are asking that religious liberty is not synonymous with this Christian exceptionalism that you preach. Because what, what do Christians love to do? They love to talk about the dangers of religious liberty in every aspect of their life until it serves them to hashtag religious liberty because they're feeling oppressed. But make no mistake, there is a distinct difference between this Christian exceptionalism and religious liberty. And basically with religious liberty, it means that we all get the right to practice our faith freely, we get the right to be consensual in the faith that we choose and to not have it forced upon us or evangelized onto us. And you can be Christian and you can think that you are exceptional, but you don't get to bring that into Congress, into the Senate. You don't get to bring that into my child's school. And that is where this shockwave is coming from on the alt-right or in the fundamentalist communities because they cannot wrap their mind around the fact that, holy shit, we might not be the prevailing, you know, exception to to the religion. And so that's something that I think is really, really interesting. And it kind of goes into the conversation that you were having about um, colonialism and then how it kind of made you feel yucky. And I was thinking about how, you know, a lot of clapbacks, Christians love the argument well, then how do you think Christianity is so widespread if it's not the real, you know, prevailing religion? And I'll say because Because you guys are fucking colonizers. You guys are fucking colonizers. You guys are phenomenal. Your PR team is immaculate. And you have these abolition, you know, these men have this abolition mindset. You let them go everywhere in the world. You put no punitive measures on them. You let them say whatever they want to say. You let them pastor whoever they want to pastor. You are not punitive in any way. As a matter of fact, when they do wrong, you immediately abolish their wrong. And that is how so many fucking Christians exist in the world. You have annihilated countless religions, countless spiritualities, countless, you know, tribal practices because of your creepy ass colonization. And so the argument that I I know is going to come to mind for certain Christians that might listen to this, although I don't know if they would get this far or they could stomach this far in the, in the, in the but like, is they're going to be like, well, 
no, what about how Christianity is just dominant in the world? Yeah, it's dominant in the world for one reason only, buddy, because you're really good at colonizing the world. And you've done so not just through the lens of religion, but through the lens of slavery, through the lens of trade, through the lens. I mean, you have colonized everything. It's not just religion, but they think that they're uniquely exceptional is my point. Yeah, <laughs> you you got me started on persecution complex. Um, I think there is like this little window between when I knew for sure I was never going back to church and when I saw persecution complex arise and rear its ugly head in all its glory, uh, like last really last summer, I feel like, um, it was like all of a sudden, um, a bunch of pastors that I know of that I've, whose teachings I've sat under, who I've met were acting so persecuted. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? And why is this your view of what's actually happening right now? Because honestly, like, like you said, I, I do think that they really believe that. And it's, a real feeling. They really feel persecuted and it hurts and, and it's not being challenged. Um, I mean, like they're not challenging that feeling in order to like grow out of it and, and process it. But when you look at it from the outside and you recognize that as a persecution complex, I remember the day that I got that word, like that term, um, it felt like a gift because it just made everything make so much more sense. And the way that I saw it explained is that when your faith relies on being persecuted and you're not actually being persecuted, you have to make it up. You have to like concoct and create fake persecution to show how strong you are and sticking to your guns and sticking to your values and holding on to your Jesus. And that's, that's not really, I don't think that's who I've ever really been. It's not who I thought a lot of these leaders ever were. And I, I saw a lot of the circumstances of the pandemic pull that out of them. And and clearly, I think a lot of social commentary of the past year of like 2020, um, you know, like March to March, basically this past year has been that there's there's this special mix of being alone and being online and having time to think and having a good amount of isolation to step away from your day to day, to step away from your thoughts and to gain some new perspective and for things that have been going on all along, things that people have been saying all along to come to the forefront and be impossible to ignore. And I I was hoping that there would be a bit of different outcome, but I think that the persecution complex that that's ingrained in a lot of people has been the biggest block to growing out of the colonial mindset and getting into a more inclusive and I mean, Catholic means universal. And so that's like, that's ingrained in me. This like universalism. And when you have like the, the, the binary thinking of evangelicalism, plus that persecution complex, it, it really literally makes it hurt 
brains to like kind of like try to think about things in a different way and think about different perspectives and look at people who have had experiences that have not been like yours. It literally, you know, like your thinking creates grooves in your brain. And when that's constantly reiterated and you have this like confirmation bias, your life around you is reiterated by like everyone around you and like your entire culture that you've built, then it is very colonial because you're just, you're just repeating the pattern and the grooves are just getting deeper and deeper. And when something comes along and like confronts that or like interjects, then it literally hurts your brain. And it's hard to think in a different way. It's so it's hard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like everything that I had said about how I feel like there's just so much divinity in my deconstruction process and how bizarre yeah. those two things are. Like how it's bizarre to have divinity at the intersection of deconstruction and how like yeah. it's so weird because last night in the phone call, I literally feel like you were there. It's like you had to be there. Um, there was a whole conversation about neural pathways and about the the reality, you know, the reality that uh, I'm taking a neurobiology class that I'm loving right now, and um, we are we're currently learning about neural pathways, which, you know, I think everybody who has taken like a basic psych 101 class knows that you create, you know, that you create neural pathways in your brain that that's how you form an addiction, that's how you form a toxic relationship, it's how you form codependency, it's how you form a belief in a religion or what have you. And so we were talking about neural pathways against the backdrop of, which is a really difficult, nuanced conversation against the the backdrop of having empathy for those that we have not yet seen, you know, them change out of their, out of their toxic behaviors, out of some of their perpetuating of colonialism or what have you. And we were talking about how, of course, we don't excuse these behaviors, but we can definitely have empathy because the science tells us that. um, And then we were talking about neuroplasticity and how um, the reality is that some brains are more elastic than others. Some age demographics are more elastic than others. Some people with, you know, more or less trauma have more elasticity in their brain. And so we're talking about how some people, they're literally um, their their neural pathway, their their ability to create and form other neural pathways is um, you know fundamentally hindered or much slower. And then it's not just that; it's that there has to be a will to do that, right? They have to have a will to create that new neural pathway, that new idea of potentially needing to deconstruct from this or potentially needing to approach their identity and explore their Christianity through this neural pathway. You know, and that's why I always say that um, from a psychological perspective, I really um, I don't expect someone to hear my radically deconstructed story and immediately be like, that's it. That's the truth. And completely walk away from their friends, their family, their church, their everything and just be like, yep. And like, I think that people get that impression of me at times that I'm expecting that Um, when, as I mentioned earlier in the in the call, you know, this is a journey. Deconstruction is a journey. And when you are looking at things, unfortunately, this applies to much of life. When you're looking at things through the lens of neuroplasticity and neural pathways and, and what you were talking about as well. You kind of have this oh fuck moment of like, oh fuck, like I hate that that person impacted me that way or that that person has that thought or that that person has that belief and I can hold them accountable for their impact, but I almost can't 
you know, be super, it's kind of, I, I call it turning the lights on the monsters. So I say like, you look under the bed and you see the monster and it's dark and you're so, so scared. Um, and then you turn on the light, you look under the bed. Okay. It's still a monster, but it, it, there's a light on it now. And now it, it makes so much sense and it's not as scary. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for sure. I think I, I tend to think that most people in abusive relationships, um, and in, you know, like restrictive environments, if that's like, that's kind of like the tamest way that I would maybe describe a lot of churches. Um, they're, they're in it because they love their leaders. They, they love and they care about their leaders and they feel like they're in an environment where people care about them. And I think there is a lot of love and care in those environments. And I also think that like when you get into an abusive relationship and abuse enters um, like a, a dynamic where there's already a power differential, then the person that's being abused typically has empathy for their abuser. And that's great and it's beautiful, but it's also why people stay. It's also like a huge reason why people stay in abusive relationships And so I think that it would be really awesome to start seeing people given the tools to continue to like love themselves through, you know, still loving and caring about someone who's abusive, but also getting out and also becoming empowered to say like part of this love is, is like saying no to abuse and not allowing it to happen anymore in this relationship. But at the same time, abuse is not something that you allow. Um, it's, it happens regardless of whether or not you want it to, it happens outside of you wanting something to happen. It happens anyway. And right. And then, I mean, but then yeah, there's just so much, I just want to, you know, micro and macro abuse. We're not talking about just like, you know, a punch to the face, We're talking about micro abuse. We're talking about mm-hmm. shared partnerships that, that have mutual abuse because there's yeah. so much toxicity in the relationship that yeah. there's just like an, you know, a, a pull, a push and a pull of abuse. Um, just so many types of abuse. Right. Yeah. I think, um, an abusive relationship can be like, it can have a lot of good in it. And that's, that's another reason why people stay and they think that it's going to get better. It's going to be fixed. And, um, and you know, it's like outside of the, the incidences of abuse themselves, why people stay is that empathy and that love and that care. And, um, and then it's also survival. It's, it's a survival response, um, to an environment where like, you don't really know, what's on the outside of that. Mm-hmm. And and I think like you can become so desensitized to what's happening. Um, but yeah, like that you don't necessarily recognize in the incidences themselves of abuse. There's like broad abuse, like a, like a general abusive relationship. And then there's a relationship where there are incidences of abuse that are unpredictable. Um, and there, I would just, I just, am like differentiating because I don't mean like, you just stay and like, you keep letting yourself be abused. Like, I don't believe that at all. I think that it's like, you, you probably don't realize that you're being abused for the most part. Um, but like one of those things that happens in the brain of a victim is just that, that empathy and that like 
seeing the other person that's abusing them as a good person with a good heart and good intentions and, and believing that they're healing or getting better or wanting to change. And I see a lot of myself in that in um, my last relationship that was really abusive. Um, I could look at it overall as a really good relationship in a lot of ways. Like it, it grew me in some ways. It, it pushed me in some ways. And a lot of ways that I was being pushed were very abusive. Um, like the expectations that were being put on me were very abusive. And then there were also, it was also peppered with incidences of abuse. And so like, do I call that relationship an abusive relationship? And do I, you know, do I call that person abusive or an abuser? Um, there's like, there's a lot of like different terminology that you could use, but a lot of the reason that I stayed personally was I, I had so much empathy for him. And a lot of it was like, I had more empathy for him than I was able to recognize that I needed to have empathy for myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. 100%. Yeah. There's so much nuance in, mm-hmm. and and this, so I also want to just hold space for the fact that this transcends you know, um, just romantic relationships. It can also be platonic relationships. It can also be relationships, you know, with a mentor, relationships with a parent, relationships with a sibling, relationships with a friend. Um, But of course, romantic relationships are where we really see a lot of abuse exasperated. But I share many of the same sentiments that you share about um, my last, I call it a situationship because it wasn't really a relationship at all. It was just more of a situation that I was in for many years. Um, However, I... And I haven't really explored um, yet how to broach that conversation on the podcast while still also, you know, making sure that all identities are preserved. And I know that you know about that and having personal things you want to hold to your chest. But um, for me personally, I look back on my last situationship and I see um, hurt people hurting people, if that makes sense. And I see a lot of, um, you know, I see a lot of a lot of nuance, a lot of gray, um, a lot of, of me being the victim in a way that I didn't even know that I was the victim because I was being gaslit into believing that I was the perpetrator, which is a whole nother, a whole nother type of abuse, right? And then it was all set against the backdrop of my mental illness, which is something that, again, I've, I've hinted at, I've talked a little bit about on my podcast, but I haven't really divulged and that'll be for another episode for another day. But then things get really gray um, when you start talking about that and talking about, you know, disorders and about identity disorders and about, you know, trying to just like grasp for air in the world of, of identity, you know, who, who am I? And, 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 yeah. and it, that's really when it starts to get scary, the idea of leaving that relationship because, you know, this might be peppered with problems. This might never even have been a relationship at all. It was more of a situation that just kept going and going and going but at least I know it. And I'm afraid, especially because of what this person has imposed on me about, you know, my character and about my, you know, who I am as a person. I'm afraid that if I leave, no one else will ever love me, will ever show me affection, will ever be able to accept that part of me. It will ever be able to look at me and say, oh, you have this mental illness. Okay. Well, I still love you anyways. And I was so scared for the free fall. And then it's funny because when I finally got pushed into the free fall by this individual, just kind of doing away with me in their life, um, I was, I was pushed unwillingly. And I look at that and I say, wow, you are 
probably one of the cruelest people I will ever encounter in my entire life when it comes to how you treated me. However, you're also someone who set my life in motion in a way that I didn't even have the capacity to do for myself because you pushed me in a way that I would have been paralyzed with fear. I call it the monkey bar analogy. I would have been clinging on to the monkey bar for an infinite amount of time, probably through my entire lifetime or a good chunk of it. But once I got pushed to the next monkey bar and I was in that moment of free fall, I realized that it really wasn't scary at all. And there was so much divinity and there was so much like collection of goodness with friends and family ushering in and cushioning my fall. And, um, and here I am, you know, two years later, rising up to be this version of myself that I say that who I am now, my ceiling right now was my, like, or my floor right now was my ceiling two years ago. Does that make sense? Like my floor right now was my ceiling two years ago. I never, ever thought I would ever be able to reach it. And now I'm standing on it. And I just look at that feeling that I'm looking at right now. And I'm like, oh shit, that feeling is going to be my floor soon enough because I'm rising and I'm rising. But, um, you know, this is just a whole, again, nuance. There's so much nuance and there's so much, um, just, inability to have these types of dialogues in a huge, huge percentage of the population. And so there's so much displaced anger, displaced rage, displaced frustration um, with individuals who don't know how to articulate the nuance of relationships. And of course, you know, again, as you mentioned, as I want to reiterate, I'm not explicitly talking about relationships where you know, there's extreme physical abuse or where there's, you know, just unthinkable, you know, abuse happening. But I think it's important to point out that there is nuance in relationships, whatever type or form of relationship they might be, romantic or otherwise, there is reason to take the leap of faith and go to the next monkey bar if you feel like there's toxicity and there is, there is a way forward for duality saying, hey, I know that that this individual was toxic and that this is not okay and I do not stand for the impact that they had on my life, but I also move forward in um, peace, grace, mercy, love, you know, fruits of the spirit, if you will, <laughs> um, and, and say, I, I hope that you don't do unto others as you, as you have done unto me. Yeah, I, I definitely... The, you know, the way that I was like kind of setting up my, like the details, like explaining the sort of process of these, you know, the different aspects of abusive relationships um, and then bringing my experience into it is that that's like on the micro level of a broader problem of people experiencing that in church. And the point that I think I want to make with that is just that you can come out of a church where you've been abused or hurt and you can, you can still have those same kind of feelings. Um, you can, you can still have empathy for the process and get yourself out of that environment so that you can be safe and so that you can heal, um, while you are able to either, you know, like not, you know, you can go no contact, but then there's also an aspect of like, I think a lot of people are getting into starting to hold churches accountable. And I have gotten into that a little bit. I'm staying anonymous um, in certain ways as I do that. 
Um, I mean, like I'm not, I'm not on this podcast to like call out any specific church or anything, but it, it is a part of a broader general problem that I see over and over and over again, and that I have experienced over and over and over again. And it mirrors exactly what I experienced in an abusive domestic partnership. And there's a way that you can, you know, if you can recognize that your relationship is abusive, I didn't personally recognize that the relationship that I ended was an abusive relationship. And, and I was not even able to acknowledge that I myself had been abused for an 11 month period after the the relationship ended. Um, And so I think getting to safety is everyone's it's like everyone's personal journey, what that looks like for them. If they're, if they're in an environment where there's abuse going on, but at some point it is possible to maintain safety and also be able to hold abusers accountable. And not that won't be what everyone does or chooses to do. It's not everyone's journey, but it's possible to have empathy for your abusers outside of the situation. And like, um, you know, outside of being a part of like a church anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like, and also being able to like have that accountability or not and, um, and being able to like move on and, um, you know, and like, and take care of yourself and learn how to take better care of yourself, better and better care of yourself. That's like, that's everybody's journey as well. Um, right. And there's, there's a lot that goes into, you know, and I know we're specifically now transitioning as we end this episode very shortly into like just the conversation of um, abuse in the church and what that can look like mm-hmm. when people hold positions of power, potentially individuals who are not, you know, trauma informed or otherwise educated at all <laughs> um, that are now holding these positions of authority. They have um, a lot of abolition to rely on in their pocket, knowing that they're going to get a lot of get out of jail free cards, so to speak from the, um, the churches insulating them. You have a lot of individuals who are going to say like, well, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, they're going to say, well, that's not my experience with the church. Well, you know, I did yeah. this or that. And so they're going to come, come into this place of neutrality, right? Because they're not personally in a place where they feel personally oppressed. So why would they go to bat for someone who has been, you know, in this position that is not their own thing and potentially put their own yeah. reputation and their own, you know, why would they wear somebody's red letter, so to speak, you know? And I think that, that's a really interesting um, point as we, again, end this episode pretty soon to just think about like, what is the future of um, accountability in the church look like? And obviously in every area of, of life, when it comes to um, oppression, neutrality is often the biggest oppressor, right? And, and neutrality is often the, 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 the overwhelming silent majority is, um, is responsible in some ways, which is so hard to wrap our minds around because they're often the ones that smile at you and that say, you know, that say that they love you and da, 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 you know, um, is responsible for some of that upholding of those, of those abuses. And then also of those structures that, um, that create these environments for abuse. And so what do you think the future looks like in terms of, um, 
what we need to do better um, in the church community and holding abusers accountable and all of that. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of people, their deconstruction does include abuse. And for those people, it's possible to leave and, and, and not be, you know, like not, not take on the narrative that you're not an empathetic person. Um, but like also part of deconstruction might look like going back and it might look like holding people accountable from the outside and it might look like staying. Um, and I, like I recently posted on Instagram, like deconstruction can be with or without a lot of different elements um, that it often includes, but like you can, you can deconvert, you can just, you can leave an abusive relationship or you can leave a church that's not necessarily abusive without deconstructing, without going through the process of like picking apart every belief and figuring out what you believe. And I think a lot of people who have deconstructed and deconverted have done both silently and they've, they've done it underground and there's more of a movement now that is going back and holding places accountable to the harm that they've created and asking people to change and like trying to get churches to take on better accountability um, and more healthy practices. Um, But that doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be a part of everyone's process. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like some people might kind of have more of like a niche specialization and like their accountability. They might have experienced one aspect of something that doesn't work well in church that they would like to see change and they can address that. I think the more we kind of like include everyone um, who wants to be included and wants to be given a voice, um, the, the more we're going to see this change. And like, if, if Christianity stays, like I would definitely like to see it becoming more universal and more accepting, obviously. And, um, and the main thing that that's going to take is, is people being able to hear and and listen and, and hold themselves accountable instead of like sweeping stuff under the rug and flipping blame and gaslighting. Um, and, and it's, it's absolutely going to take decolonizing and, um, and sadly that's, it's going to see a lot of deconversion, I think. Um, and maybe that's not sad. Either. Like right. Maybe that's right. Well, sad for, for a lot of people, <laughs> yes, people who want their persecution yeah. to be reinforced. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that too, like something that is so interesting. And again, I, we really do need to wrap up just for the sake of making sure that this uploads on time. I know you and I could talk for hours and hours, but something that I think is like a really good takeaway is that, um, Neutral Christians, Christians that are actively sweeping things under the rug, Christians that are, you know, seeing abuse and turning a blind eye, um, all of that is fundamentally leading to um, a lot of this, you know, what they're seeing as persecution, I'm seeing as natural die off, you know, it's leading to a lot of this natural die off. And so the best thing that I can tell any Christian that has made it this far in the episode, which if you have, you get 
a sticker, um, <laughs> is that you your job as a Christian really should be, in my eyes, making sure that you know people like you and I who have experienced abuse in the church, who have experienced traumatic relationships at the hands of Christianity, um, we don't have to do this alone because not unlike other you know types of oppression, it feels like it, the burden always falls on the oppressed. And I don't like that. And obviously, like so many of the different groups that you're referencing without naming that are um, individuals who are coming up and, you know, speaking out against the churches and, and, and holding accountability. These are often run by these accounts are often run by individuals who have experienced, you know, an insane amount of abuse or oppression of their own. And they're having to compartmentalize that abuse and that oppression to be able to uplift the um, individuals who may be silently suffering. And so my thing would just be a reminder that it is not on those who are abused, those who are oppressed, whether it be silently or publicly to do this alone. It is also on every single Christian who says that they stand for mercy, love, justice, truth, peace, and, and the heart of Jesus. And if that is who you are as a Christian, and it is your job to stand up and without the burden of abuse under your coattail and without the burden of being oppressed under your coattail, you know, yield some of that power over to those of us that have had those experiences to, to amplify our voices. Oh yeah, I agree. <laughs> if I've left, it's for a good reason. And it's, I think it's now on you, like who are still in something telling me that I should be a part of it to make me safe. If you want me to come back, if you want me to stay, if you want people to stay, then you need to make them safe. That's your job. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, Faye, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and doing what I expected to be true, which is that this was not going to be a long enough episode. <laughs> um, but it has been a true pleasure, and I, I do hope that we'll be able to have you on in the future if, you'd, if you're still awesome. willing. Um, so we can delve a little deeper, and then we'll see you um, hopefully on the Zoom calls, which all are invited to. That's uh, an extension of the Nobody's Damsel space and community. I do facilitate them through my Ellie Coburn account on Instagram, but they are kind of the heart of what I envisioned for Nobody's Damsel when I first started this um, this this journey of becoming a podcaster. My heart was I would love to see a world where um, you know a micro world created on Instagram or social media where we can connect with like-minded individuals going through like-minded experiences. And so we have these Zoom calls that I facilitate so that you know people like Faye and I and and dozens of others can meet up and have these critical conversations in a space where we don't have a time limit, but that often leads to these conversations being like five or six hour Zoom calls. Um, but it's great, and and so you all are welcome. Um, that are listening in. If you want to continue this dialogue, just go ahead and shoot me a direct message and I'll get you plugged into that community. Um, otherwise, you know where to find us every Friday before noon Pacific Standard Time. You're going to get a new episode of Nobody's Damsel. We have an incredible episode next week. All March long, we have great episodes and I'm so, so excited. But thank you again, Faye, for being here. Thank you.